Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders uh, and the lead pastor here at the church. We have other pastors. Uh, we are a spiritual family, and if you're visiting with us, we're very grateful that you would come out on this very brisk Sunday morning. Uh, we are, as uh, Wade has already said, uh, quite exuberantly. Uh, Wade is very exuberant. And, uh, yes, he is. Make sure the mic is off if he still has it, okay? No, teasing. Uh, that we are in our 21 days of prayer and fasting, something we do as a spiritual family every year. It's really a significant time, and it is not too late. If you haven't participated, it's not too late to get in on it. Uh, you, can, uh, you can just fast a couple of meals this week or maybe a day or uh, set aside something in order to seek the Lord and see what he will say and do. He is still speaking today, and I want to really encourage you to to seek him. He's come near, and he is waiting for you to draw near to him. So God is doing so many great things in our community, uh, and if you're visiting with us, we, we pray that you'll be blessed this morning. It's really always an honor to have our dear friend Jim Newsom with us. Um, Jim, you want to clap? You can. Go ahead and clap. Yeah. Jim uh, and I have known each other uh, since 1986. Uh, he and I were actually both uh, screened by the same ordaining council of pastors. Uh, they sat with me, uh, and then they're like, we're not so sure about you. And then they saw Jim, is like, oh, he's awesome. So uh, that's not, he says it's the opposite. Uh, but uh, we've known each other since 1986. So I don't know how many years that is, but it's a lot. And uh, he is also the one who led Jamie to the Lord uh, at 16. Uh, we have a lot of history. Jim, Jamie and Kathy were his, they were, worked in the church that he pastored, were youth pastor there. And uh, Jim is, uh, was the first speaker at Camp of Champions that I started back in 1989. Uh, we have a lot of history, a lot of ministry history together, but he's just really, uh, along with Diane, just some of our closest friends. And so whenever we get the chance to have him minister, uh, it's always a blessing to us. He got to minister to our young people last night, the youth group, and it was really great. And I know that you're going to be blessed to receive from him. So I'd like for you, if you would, just welcome him, Jim Newsom. Good morning, good morning. <clears throat> Man, this is one of my favorite places to come. <clears throat> it really is. I look forward to seeing you guys. In fact, I, I like you guys so much. I, on this trip, I was going to spring for donuts for everyone this morning. <laughs> but then, then Chris told me you're fasting, you know? So <clears throat> maybe next time I can do that and <laughs> you can get in on the donuts. If you're fasting, just the word donuts, you start smelling it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what happens to me, but I don't know about you, but it's good to be here. I'll, I want to give you some greetings from my wife, Diane, my better half. Uh, <clears throat> James doesn't think I actually have a wife, even though she came here one time with me, and he told me I rented her, <laughs> that I rented her from somewhere because he never believed that I had a wife. Well, I do. Her name is Diane, and, and uh, if there wasn't a Diane, there wouldn't be a me. I mean, she keeps me, she, her moral compass is so strong. I mean, she always colors within the lines. Me, not so much. But because of her, I don't color that far outside the lines because she is in my life, so I'm grateful. I want to tell you a story about her real quick, because some people don't really know. She's kind of quiet, but she is so unique, so creative. I always like in the spring, I like to sit on my front porch and watch all the birds. My wife feeds all the birds, so all different kinds of birds come, and, and we even have some hawks. And, and one spring, I was, there was a baby robin that fell out of a, a nest. And uh, <clears throat> couldn't get back in, hadn't learned to fly yet. And, and so over a couple of days, the mother kept coming and feeding the baby while it was on the ground. It was hopping around. And so one Sunday morning before I was going to church, I was watching this. The mother had just come over to feed the little 
baby robin, and as I was watching it, all of a sudden this big hawk comes down into my yard. And right near the little robin, and I'm praying, please don't get it. Well, as soon as I said that, that that hawk just grabbed that little baby robin and flew off. All the other mothers, you know, all the other robins are squawking at it as it's flying away. And I'm broken up. I was rooting for this little baby bird. I mean, I'm at the point of tears. I'm so sad. And I go in and I want to share my sorrow with my wife. She was sitting inside. So I tell her what happened, you know, with tears in my eyes, watery eyes. And she says, well, her babies need to eat too. (laughs) One time on a church, I was going to speak at, at my own church. And that morning, I was going to boast about some of my accomplishments like like um, Paul did, where he said he was going to act foolish. So I told Diane, I said, Diane, this morning, I'm going to talk like a fool. And she goes, and that's going to be different how? (laughs) So you can see how she keeps me in line. Well, it really is good. Who spilt this water? All right. I'm trying to find a scripture you can turn to. Anyway, um, if you can turn to John, the first chapter, and it'll take me a while to get to John, the first chapter, so just turn there. I want to start out by telling you a story. I might have told it here before, but it's such a good story. If you heard it, you'll be glad to hear it again. It's about my best friend, Jim Britnell. As most of you know, I spent eight years of my life in prison. I had a 30-year sentence for a certain crime. I got saved the night before. I I committed the crime. The next night, I became a Christian in my living room, and the next morning, I turned myself in. I figured if I surrendered my life to Christ, the only thing I could do is surrender my life to the authorities. So I met with some detectives. I confessed to my crime. They charged me with second-degree murder, and I pled guilty to that. And they gave me the maximum sentence allowed by law, which is 30 years. I said all that to say that I met my best friend in prison. He had a 40-year sentence for a, a, a breaking and entering in the house. He's from Pensacola. And we've been friends now since 1975, so we're going on 50 years of friendship. I mean, and we are best friends. He was the best man in my wedding. Uh, you know, all my kids call him Uncle Britt. His name is Jim Britt now, but everybody calls him Britt. But anyway, he loves the water. That's why he lives in Pensacola. He loves to surf. He loves to swim. He swims three miles a day in the ocean. I mean, this guy, if you cut him, he bleeds water. If you cry around him, he likes you better because he sees water. I mean, the guy likes water, and he... And he, he bought a sailboat. He likes to sail. But one of the main things he does is he likes to fish. And every time I go, with, go see him, he makes me get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go fishing with him. Now, on this particular morning, I wasn't with him. I hadn't been at his house. But he tells a story about how he got up and he fishes off a bridge over a channel that leads out into the Gulf of Mexico. And early in the morning, the fish are going out to feed, so they're real hungry. So it's a good place to fish. So he's fishing, and there's normally the same crowd fishing and uh, hoping they can catch something. Well, this morning, there's a new guy they never met before. And he had three or four different rods, and he had his hat on with all the different lures and everything. I mean, he really looked like a fisherman. And, And so he starts fishing. And he's catching fish after fish after fish, much to the frustration of everybody around him, including my friend. They're a little upset because by comparison, they're not catching anything at all. And then to add to their frustration, this new fisherman would do something strange with the fish. After he'd catch it, he'd hold it up and look at it. And depending on its size, he either put it in his bucket or he threw it back. Now, that wouldn't be frustrating 
if it wasn't for the fact that he was throwing back the little fish, I mean the, the big fish, and keeping all the little fish compared. So finally, Jim, my, bro, my friend, got so upset, he went over and he says, why are you throwing all those big fish back? And he goes, well, if you must know, it's because of my frying pan. <laughs> he said, my frying pan's just so big. And if they don't fit into my frying pan, I throw them back. Now I said all that to <clears throat> say this to you. Is in this morning's message, I want to try to give you, as Christians, a bigger frying pan. Uh, the challenge that all of us face when we read the Bible or listen to sermons is we don't throw out what God is wanting to say to us because it doesn't fit into the frying pan of our nice, narrow, packaged theological thinking. The challenge is to let God give us a bigger frying pan. By that, I mean to allow the Holy Spirit to enlarge our capacity to know him. There are things that God wants to say to us, every one of us this morning, that are bigger than our present capacity is to unhear them or understand them. One of the books that I read early in my Christian experience was by J.B. Phillips and was called Your God is Too Small. After I read this book, I realized that my conception of God was small, childish, and limited. I allowed my own personal comfort to determine how big I allowed God to get in my life. My fear was that the bigger and more powerful he was, the more he would expect from me. My limits on God was a feeble attempt on my part to control what God could or would do in my life. But I did this to my own detriment because there were many times, many, many times, that I need a, a bigger and more powerful God. But the same box that I placed him in in order to control what he did in me also kept him from conquering certain things for me. So <clears throat> this morning, I want to enlarge your capacity. Lack for another word to give you a bigger frying pan. I want everybody, a lot of pastors, a lot of ministers say, I hate it when people have pastors, you say this after me. I'm not one of those. I like people saying what I say. So if you will say this with me, say, I need a bigger frying pan. Now I want you to look at somebody and point at them and say, you need a bigger frying pan. <laughs> What if, I, what if I were to tell you of a hidden virtue that, in essence, is the key to all of life? It unlocks the purpose of your existence, attracts the presence, protection, and providence of your creator. It's the root of all noble character, the foundation of all happiness, and provides needed adjustments to all our circumstances that we may face. Firmly embracing this virtue could lengthen your life, procure, procure good health, ensure success and safety, eliminate lack, and guarantee a noble legacy. How many of you would like to hear about a virtue like that? That's the key to all life. Well, here's the key. I believe this virtue is called obedience to God's will. And I want to teach you something. What I want to do this morning is to enlarge your under, understanding of obedience. God doesn't want us to obey for his sake. All obedience is for our sake. So... <clears throat> It's not so much God rewards obedience. Obedience is the reward. It's the mechanism. It's the key that God gives us that unlocks all that he is, all that he has, and all he can do. So it says in John 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
this word contains God. <clears throat> and so in the containers that contain him, what he is, what he has, what he can do, he puts in the form of commandments. So commandments are the container. And obedience, our obedience on our part, is the key. So we unlock the container, the word of God, the commandments, which is the word of God, and it releases God who's within the word. All that he is, all that he has, all that he can do, all that he knows. First John 5, 3 states this. For this is the love of God that we may keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. <laughs> you know why? Once you're on the other side of a commandment, it may seem burdensome while you're seeking to obey it. But once you unlock the container and get on the other side, you're saying, man, this wasn't a burden at all. But the obedience is what gets you to that place where it's not burdensome. Psalm 119 verse 35 states out of the New Century Version, and I love this. It says, lead me in the path of your commands because that makes me happy. I mean, if you understand this, you'll never say, I have to obey. What you will say is, I get to obey. Because when I obey, I get happy. Makes me happy. I mean, really. I mean, it, you're on the other side, you obeyed, you're on the other side, and there is something in the midst of what you just did that makes you so stinking happy. Isaiah 119 says this, uh, out of the New King James Version, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Uh, one translation I love this, is that you shall feast like kings. Meaning the feasting like kings is on the other side of the commandment. You obey, open it up, and there's a table. And how many of you know you feasting like a king will make you happy? I mean, you'll just sit there and be happy. <clears throat> the psalmist in uh, Psalm 112 verse 1 states, Blessed is the man who, greatly, uh, who delights greatly in his commandments. David said it this way. He says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. I mean, both of these verses say to delight. Because I have found when you do the will of God for your life, which means you need to obey, is you find his will to be the most delightful thing there is. There's nothing more delightful than being smacked dab in the middle of God's will. It says over in Romans 12, verse 2, it says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform the way you think. Then you will, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Here's one of the things I found out about God's will. And you can only get into God's will when you obey. Is number one, it's too far. It's perfect and it's perfecting. It's perfect for you and it also continues to perfect you. His will, whatever that is, is perfect. I'm primarily a prison minister. I, I, I allow myself at times to speak to people like you who are free and happy and stuff. But, <laughs> but no, I love, I'm, I'm perfect for prison ministry. I mean, not only am I perfect for it, but it's perfect for me. I mean, when I'm in a prison ministering or counseling or just fellowshipping with an inmate, man, I'm delighted. It's the most delightful thing there is. My kids, they're all grown now, but when they were growing up, <clears throat> when I got a little moody or I got a little uh, judgmental or, you know, a little angry, I know nobody else does, but I do, and <clears throat> one of my kids would always say, hey, Dad, 
can't you find you a prison to preach in? Because they knew when I came out of a prison, man, I'm operating on all 12 cylinders. I am happy. I am merciful. I am gracious. I'm dancing into the door, you know. And my son learned early. My daughter didn't ever learn this. I don't know why. But my son learned the best, way to, the best time to hit me up for something is when I come home from a prison meeting. He's always at the door. Hey, Dad, remember what I asked you last week? And you said, no, how about now? I said, sure, son, you can have it. You know, all my thoughts about parenting just go out there because I'm feeling good. But it's perfect. And it's perfecting. It, it's the thing that keeps perfecting you. Uh, so... A person who obeys has the foundational understanding that God's will, God is our creator, and therefore he knows what makes us and what undoes us. Here's the reason why God puts what he wants us to do in a command form. Because if he didn't, we wouldn't do it. Because his kingdom operates so totally different the way this world does. That his commands, if he doesn't make, if he just said some of these things, we'd say, there's no way. That doesn't work. Let me give you a couple examples. First one, he says, hey, son, in the word, he says, if you want to live, you got to die. Now, how many you know that doesn't, that doesn't ring true? God, what do you mean? I want to live, I got to die. But I'm telling you when, you, when you operate, when I die, there's something that interests me in order to do God's will. I come alive to something that interests God. And what interests God, I found, is way better than what interested me. He says in another place, he says, son... If you want to be first, get at the end of the line. Now, I mean, you know, that just doesn't, this world doesn't operate like that. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now, there's a lot of meanings to this, but one of the meanings I've grabbed from this and it has served me well over the years is anytime I put myself first on my own list, my needs get taken care of. My comfort is primo. Uh, you know, what is he? Anytime I put my needs first on my, my list, I become last on God's list. When he's looking to bless somebody, I'm the last one on the list. My angels might even go to him and say, Lord, you haven't been blessing Newsom lately. He says, I don't have to. He's too busy blessing himself. <laughs> But anytime I put myself last on my own list, that I esteem others better than myself, that I'm more concerned about their interests than my own interests, anytime I'm last on my own list, I'm first on his. When he's going to go give out some blessings, guess who gets it? Me. How'd I get there? Because I'm last. He told me to get at the end of the line. That's a command. One more, and I, just real quick, he, he says this. He says, if you want to, he says, give and you shall receive. See, in the world, our receiving determines our giving. I get so much, I'll determine from what I receive to what I give. In God's kingdom, the opposite. Your giving determines your receiving. And it works. It does. He says, if you give, it shall be given unto you. Pressed on, shaken together, running over. Meaning you're shaking. What are you, God's going to get? He's filling this thing up and he's shaking it to get more room into it. And he's rattling. He's trying to get so he can give you even more. Then it says, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured back to you. So I determine how much I'm going to receive, my measure of receiving, and what determines that is my measure of giving. 
If you allow me to talk like a fool for a moment, I'm going to tell you one. In last month, I asked my pastor if I could preach on giving to the church because we have a big budget and, and each week the offering was lower than what the budget was. So I decided in order the end, and I had three frying pans. I was going to bring them on this trip, but I forgot. I have a really big frying pan. I mean, and then I had a regular frying pan. Then I had this little small frying pan. And so in, in the measures that you give. So a lot of times we use the small frying pan to determine, you know, we give and then that's the same one God will use on us. Whatever he can fit into what that frying pan we gave, that's what he's going to give back to us. He says, well, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. Now, let me tell you this. God doesn't measure generosity by the size of the gift. He measures generosity by the size of the sacrifice. When Jesus looked at the widow who only put two copper pen, uh, pennies into the plate, and those Pharisees were given a talent of silver, a whole lot more. He said she gave more than all of them because she gave all that she had. <clears throat> so, so in that, I felt like dying in and I needed to. So at the end, I had the big frying pan and I challenged people to test God. I won't go into the whole message. So, and... Neither the ministry or us personally had it, but God told, said, Jim, I want you to give $1,000. And I want the ministry to give $1,000. And I said, Lord, have you looked at our checking book? <laughs> I did say that to him. And, but we did it. And I won't tell you everything that's happened since then, but two weeks ago, in the ministry... From a source I never, even, never would have considered, we got a check from the ministry for $50,000. How many you know? Give, and it shall be given unto you. Press down, shaking together, running over. Now, I don't give to get. If that's your motive, then don't give it all. I give, give, receiving is the consequence of our giving. It should never be a motive. Just so happens you're giving because God's asking you to, and you cannot give Him. And so, anyway, I'm getting, I'm chasing this rabbit too much. So, the second thing is willingness to obey is what opens our spiritual ears, enabling us to hear what God says. John 7, 17, one of my favorite scriptures, makes this statement. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it's of God or not. So obedience, willing to obey, is what opens up your ear to hear from God. See, most Christians take this erroneous approach. Lord, let me know what your will is, and then I'll tell you if I'm willing. I mean, you know, the Lord isn't interested in us evaluating his will. I mean, Moses said, look, what you're asking me to do, I can't do. I, he evaluates this scenario. I can't talk at all like God didn't know. Oh, wow, really? You can't really? You're afraid you've got public speech? Oh, man, darn. Maybe I will use Aaron. I didn't know that, hey, Moses. He's not interested in valuing away. Here's another way of saying what I just read in John 7, 17. <clears throat> if you're willing to obey the command before the command comes, then the command will come. When you're willing, you say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Then the Lord will tell you, he'll make it clear, you will know this is what you want to do. <clears throat> if you're willing to do what God wants to reveal to you before he reveals it, he will then reveal it. Here's another way of saying it. it is the readiness to obey 
that attracts the revelation. You attract the revelation. Revelation happens when God opens our finite minds in order for us to understand something infinite. Another way of saying this is that revelation is where God helps us to know something that we couldn't know unless he helped us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to enlarge our capacity to hear from him. I want to, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 16, and I want to read verses 12 and to 14. And I'm beginning to close. Don't get excited. You know, in Philippians, on the third chapter, halfway through the book, Paul said, in closing. And he was only halfway done. So... <laughs> so it says, I'm reading on the New American Standard. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but your frying pan is too small. That's not what it says. What it, it implies, it says, but you cannot bear them now. He said, your, your, your ability to hear hasn't matured sufficiently yet. He said... <clears throat> You just can't bear them. If I told them to you now, you just wipe it off. I that can't be God. So he can't bear it. Then he says this, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will give you a bigger frying pan. Again, that's not what it says. What it says is he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Meaning that we can't bear it now. Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will guide us. Meaning that he'll take us through something that is designed to tax us, to stretch us, to enlarge us. It's what I call God will take us through something earthly so that when we get through it, we'll be able to hear something heavenly. So he guides us through this. I'm going to give you two examples, and I'm going to close with what I mean. One is a biblical example, and then the second is a personal. <clears throat> the biblical one has to do with Peter. <clears throat> when Jesus was on earth, he made statements like, for God so loved the world. Can I tell you what his disciples heard? Because they're good Jewish boys. That God loved the Jewish world. They had no inkling that when God said world, it included everybody else outside of the Jewish community. All they heard was God loves the Jewish world. He said in another place, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. You know what they heard? Well, that makes sense because we have Jewish communities in other countries, different fold. He's going to save them too, those Jews over there, because God loves Jewish people. And then in Acts 1, verse 8, when Jesus is about to take up to heaven, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You know what they heard? That we're to be his witnesses to the Jews in Jerusalem, to the Jews throughout all Judea, to the few Jews, if any, in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the world. Now, how I know that's what they heard because that's what they, they would not allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to break out into the world at large. They confined it to the Jewish community. So God had to take, he couldn't just tell Peter, hey, Peter, I meant the whole world, Gentiles too. He couldn't take him through that. You know, even though, and I want to read this one scripture in Isaiah eleven ten. it says, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles and he will place their hope on him. 
So in scripture, it, many times, I just picked out one, but many times he talks about, hey, I'm here for the Gentiles too. But raised good Jewish boys, they filtered that out. I mean, you know, we have a tendency of what we don't like, we filter out. Okay, maybe you don't, but I do. <laughs> so, so, so God has to do, I want you to turn to John 10, I mean Acts 10, and I want to show you a couple of things. So he has to guide Peter through, through something, into all truth, into a truth about that the gospel is for every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so he takes him through something earthly in order to speak to him something heavenly. So in Acts 10, 1, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea known, known, named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he, the angel, said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Just a little quick side note. Your alms always catch the notice of God. You can never give something where you sacrifice to give it that God doesn't notice it. So his, both his prayers and his arms is a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel was done speaking to him and had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier. So here is, he hears from an angel, tells him to go see Peter. He even tells him where he's going to be staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Meanwhile, over in Joppa, Peter is on a roof. And uh, he's up there praying, and he gets hungry. And the Bible says he goes into a trance. NASB says trance. And so, and in this, he sees a big sheet being let down, and in this sheet, are all kinds of animals that are not kosher for Jewish people to eat. So he's seeing this, and then he hears the voice of the Lord. He says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Now, Peter, he's about to tell God no. How many know you only want to tell God no as if that's what you think he's after? Peter's thinking, this is a test. He's going to test to see if I'm going to be a good Jewish boy and not eat anything unkosher. So he says, Lord, may I never eat anything unclean. Then the Lord says to him, he says, don't you ever call what I have cleansed unclean. He does that three times. It's important. He does it three times. After the third time, the three guys, the two servants and the shoulder, soldier, show up at Simon's house looking for Peter. Now, had this not happened, Peter would have never went with these people. It was unclean to travel with Gentile people, to go where they were going. I mean, if they were around Gentiles and came in in contact with them, after the Gentiles left, they'd go take a bath. That's how they felt defiled by Gentiles. But he had this vision, and he, there's three of them. Is that my time to stop? <laughs> Jamie told me he was going to put the fire alarm on if I spoke long. So, <laughs> Anyway, I'm almost done. So, <laughs> so happens to me. So he accompanies them. He's still not, I mean, and it, it says that he was, this perplexed him and it was taxing his mind. I mean, you know, his frying pan's getting a little bigger. Vision, three people, Gentiles, don't call whatever I've cleansed unclean, go with them. So he goes with them, enters into a Gentile home, centurion. He gives his testimony and the same Holy Spirit in the same way 
that fell on all the Jews on the day of Pentecost fall on them. And he sees this, and his frying pan got big. Because here's what he does. He's looking at this, and he goes, this is what happened. You don't read this, but here's what he did. He went, (laughs) now I understand. Now I get it. God's no respecter of persons. The gospel's for everybody. And God's up in heaven going, finally. (laughs) Took him through something earthly to enlarge his capacity to know him so he can speak something heavenly to him. So when you're going through a trial, get happy. Because that trial is designed to enlarge you so you can hear something that will change your life and cause you to become an agent of change for everybody else's life. One last story, and it's a personal one. As I mentioned earlier, I spent my life in it, eight years of my life in prison. I I was given the maximum sentence allowed by law, which was 30 years. I was 21 years old at the time. Now, back then, they had a different parole system. Every sentence was six months to. So mine was six months to 30 years. Even a life sentence in Florida in the 70s was six months to life, meaning after six months, you're eligible for parole. The average time somebody did on my crime, secondary murder, 30 years, was four years. After four years, they were paroled, the average. Some stayed longer, some got out quicker. The average time for a lifer back then, now it's all changed back then, was seven years. Somebody who had a a life sentence, now if you get a life without parole, that's okay, but a regular life sentence was six months to life, meaning you were eligible for parole. So how they did the system back then, they had seven parole commissioners, and they would send out parole interviewers. So I had an interview come interview me every year. He'd see if I... If I got my education, he see if I learned a trade, he looks to see that I get wrote up, written up at all, and uh, he'll either say to you, bring me another clean year, or I'm going to recommend you for parole. All right, <clears throat> so around the, after I'd done four years, because um, every other year he told me, bring me another clean year, and I said, okay. And uh, so he recommended me for parole. 80% of the people that get recommended for parole are granted, because then it goes between, before these seven commissioners, and they vote on it. If I get four of the seven votes, I go home. Well, I got denied. Next year, my sixth year, they come, I mean, my fifth year, they come back, and... Uh, No, that was my fifth year. So, yeah, sixth year, they come back, and I'm recommended again. He couldn't understand why I didn't get it last time. And so, and 98% of the people that get recommended twice go home. I got denied. So then, it's my seventh year. I get recommended again. Nobody has ever been recommended three times in a row and got denied. Nobody. I mean, we were all so sure I was going home, the brothers threw me a going-away party in faith. I mean, they made a big plaque for me, you know. They called me the saint of the month. And... uh, I mean, it, it, everybody. I, I was making plans to go to a Bible college. I had a girl out there that was, you know, doing all the footwork for me. I did, we weren't romantically involved. She was just somebody I knew. And so we were all so excited I was going to get on and go. Well, my letter came back and I got denied. Now, I'm going to tell you, but you, the reason why I got denied all those times is because my good behavior worked against me. That the institution, the warden and the chief security officer and the classification, I found this out later, would never sign off on it because they wanted me to stay 
because I was the manager of the inmate commissary. I lived outside the prison in a house. I had a 24-hour gate pass. And so, but when I took over the canteen, before they would have $8,000 in loss, you know, because inmates would steal the money. When I took it over, our loss was $400 every year or less. And that was due to breakage. None of the inmates that worked for me ever stole money. So because of that, I, if I knew I was, I, my value was keeping me from getting out, I'd have messed up, I promise you. I'd, I'd have cussed the warden out one time. I'd have <laughs> called him a name he would, his mama wouldn't call him, you know. And, but I didn't know that, so I got denied. So I had to call this girl on the outside that was coordinating everything, and she got so upset she started crying. So I started crying. I mean, I did. I mean, tears started going down my face. And, and I'm, you're on a payphone, and there's inmates all around. <clears throat> and so uh, three years prior, the last, the, the guy that was the <clears throat> manager of the inmate commissary before me, and the reason why I got the job it's the same thing happened to him. He kept getting denied. Uh, and so he escaped. His name was John Brown. He got really upset. They all knew he was upset, and he escaped. In fact, after that, any time an inmate tried to uh, escape, we called it, he's trying to pull John Brown. And uh, so anyway, because of that, some, some inmates saw how upset I was, went and told the colonel, Newsom is really upset that he's not going home. And remembering John Brown, because when an inmate escapes, it's the administration that gets a beat down. People get fired. Other people get demoted. And so it's a big thing. And so in order to head that off, even though he might not have thought I would escape, what he did was, is he brought me from my house two miles away where I cooked my own food, air conditioning, this place of prestige, and brought me back into the uh, institution. He took away my 24-hour gate pass, fired me from my job, put me back in a regular dorm where I had started out seven years earlier. So not only was I not going home, but everything that I had gained in that last seven years was wiped away all because I cried. Teach it, don't cry. <laughs> so I, I cried. And so I'm, I got my, I'm upset at God. I'm just, you know, God's taking me through something. I didn't see it that way. I'm thinking it's unfair, you know, I should have went home. So I got my box of my personal belongings and I see where I'm, they put me. They put me in the same bunk that I had left four years earlier in this stupid dorm with no air conditioning, everybody around you. Man, and the real realization of that made me angry, so I set my box on the floor and I kicked it, which was really stupid because I had cologne in there and all that, and that all broke. And then finally, I sit on my bunk. I'm trying to gather myself, and I say this to the Lord. I saw, I'm sorry, Lord. I shouldn't be upset. I mean, seven years or maybe eight years, maybe even 10 years, Lord. That's not that bad a punishment for killing somebody. And as soon as I said that, the Lord said this to me. I would have never heard that had I not gone through this. He says, son, did you kill somebody? And I said, remember? He said, nah. I don't remember that. The Bible says that when he forgives, he forgets. He throws it in the sea of forgetfulness. Psalm 103, verse 12, makes this statement. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I want to tell you, I am so grateful he did not say as far as the north is from the south. Because that's measurable. If I start going north now, I'll see signs north, north, north. When I get over the Arctic Circle, keep moving, I'll then start seeing signs saying south, 
south, south. But when I go east, I will never, ever see a sign saying west. And wherever that place is, as far as the east is from the west, that's where my sin of taking somebody's life is. He's removed it from me. He said, I don't remember that. I can almost imagine him. He's up there. If he did, he's bragging on me to the angels. He knew some down there, man. He's, he's doing a good work in that prison. And one of the angels say, what's he in prison for, Lord? And he said, I don't know, but look at him. I don't remember. Can I tell you how much that released me to understand that my right standing with God has nothing whatsoever to do with me? But it was going through that. By the way, the next year, I, I got paroled. I was ready. Let's stand together. Here's my challenge for all of us. God's always speaking. Are we all listening? I was telling the youth last night, right now, in this room, there are sounds. We can't hear them. But if we had a radio and it has a tuner, you can tune in to what's already in the atmosphere right here, in this earthly atmosphere. As Christians, we have a tuner. It's called the Holy Spirit, and he tunes in in the heavenly atmosphere. And we hear what's going on up there so it can be happening down here. Father, I just pray right now for these precious, precious people. Lord, I ask that you not only honor their fasting and their prayers, but Lord, you honor them as a people because this church, from everything I know and talk to, it is a sending church. It's a people who are outward focused. They want to receive from you primarily, Lord, so that they can give to other people. They want to change so that they can become agents of change for others. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to enlarge their capacity to know you, that you would grant them a bigger frying pan. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.